Hey everybody, this is Casey, looks like his space fell on the cheese dip back in 1956, Mitchum. And this is Bert, I'm all out of bubblegum Cody. And this is the Bullet Time Action Movie Podcast, and today we're going to put on the glasses and look at the 1988 classic, They Live. Starring Rowdy Roddy Piper of WWF fame, and Keith David, that guy from every movie ever. And a whole lot of Republican ghouls. So uh, let's let's delve right into the film, uh, kind of tell the folks at home what it's about. I mean, if you haven't, you've had 25 years to see this film, and um, all of you kids at home probably should have seen it by now. And we are putting on the glasses with this one, so we're going to go right into spoiler territory. So if you don't want to see the truth, you don't want to hear the truth, you might want to stop, watch the film, and come back later. Please pick up a DVD of this, even if you uh, have already seen it. Shout Factory just put out a, a wonderful Blu-ray copy, too. Uh, they're doing a lot of great work with uh, classic horror films. Um, notably, they do have uh, Police Story 1 and 2 on Blu-ray coming up. Ooh. And the lost Sam Raimi Coen Brothers collaboration, Crime Wave. Whoa. I didn't even know about that one. That's awesome. Yep. Uh, it was made in between Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. And... <laughs> Sam Raimi's kind of disowned the film, but it's got some things in it that are very much him and Coen Brothers. And if you're a fan of either of those, uh, either of those people, any of those people, uh, you should definitely check it out. If you're if you're a completist of either director or both, why why wouldn't you be? Um, yeah, so, anyways, uh, back to They Live. Yes. So, what's this film about? Well, uh, we have Rowdy, the rowdy one, Roddy Piper, playing John Nada. Uh, and if you're wondering if there's any subtlety there, no. John Carpenter's quick on a commentary to tell you, he's, he's nothing! He's John nothing! He's an everyman. And an everyman he is. He's a, he's a homeless construction worker, just going from job to job, living in L.A. And he comes across what can best be described as a magic pair of sunglasses that lets him see this Reagan-era world for what it really is, a world populated by wealthy aliens that just want us to stay asleep and be blind to this corporate this corporate consumerist world they've built around us to keep us weak. Yes, uh, John Carpenter was or is the modern master of uh, suspense horror, but he is not the master of subtlety. <laughs> so, um, this, the film stars Roddy Piper, and I, I feel like, in order to introduce this properly, the fact that Roddy Piper is a legendary professional wrestler of that 80s era um, needs to be brought up, because this is the first movie he really headlines, and prior to that, he'd had a career that sort of tenuously connected him to action film. Um, and around the time of WrestleMania 2, he was feuding with Mr. T, who had come into the WWF as a friend of Hulk Hogan. So very much to promote Rocky 3, in which T was playing Clubber Lang, and in which Hogan uh, yes. was playing Thunder Lips. Um, and they had a they had a they had a boxing match, and Roddy Piper, who's ostensibly been a villain almost his entire wrestling career, uh, he illegally won a boxing match they had. Uh, by disqualification, by body slamming uh, Mr. T in the fourth round, breaking the rules. And Piper was also the villain of of Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling cartoon show. Uh, but more importantly yes, for this movie, he, 
he is a legendary man of one-liners. Uh, I would argue he's he's a good wrestler, but nobody really watches Roddy Piper for his wrestling ability. They watch him for his charisma, for his ability to just throw one-liners out, whether they make sense or not. Or uh, shove fruit into people's faces. That's right. He's going to smash a coconut over Jimmy Snooka's head. But I mean, he's, he's a man who says a lot of lines like, Never throw rocks at a man with a machine gun, or just when you think you've got the answers, I change all the questions. He's <laughs> and it, that that's going to come in handy later in this movie, as uh, as we're going to talk about. Absolutely, that to generate uh, these one-liners. It it, is, it can be said that um, Roddy Piper was the only guy who could have played this role. A lot of people think he was somehow a stand-in for Kurt Russell, John mm-hmm. Carpenter's usual man to go to, but. Um, from what I understand, John Carpenter really did build this film around him. Yeah, uh, Piper Piper noted in the commentary that he and Carpenter had met after WrestleMania three when Carpenter had come backstage specifically looking for Piper. Um, and that at a, for a time, uh, WWF head Vince McMahon did not want Piper to take this role. He did not want him to be in this film because... McMahon liked to have control over all of his properties and his characters, and he even offered uh, Piper. You know, he said, "Oh, this movie's gonna be ma- you know made for what a budget of four million. I can put four million up and make our own movie." And Piper refused because he really wanted to work with John Carpenter. Oh yeah. And so he, he he split with WWF briefly just to be in this movie. Um, and it, his career is all the better for it. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, like I said, he is the perfect choice for this role, um, and he's one of the few wrestlers uh, I can think of that could have ever uh, played Nada. Absolutely. He's got the right amount of sort of every man, I hate to say, and um, and he looks like a guy who's been around. He, he's he's, he's weathered. Yeah, he's weathered. He's rough. He's built, but he's not jacked. It's not a Herculean guy. It's 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 visibly a guy who could have been swinging a hammer on a construction yard for decades. Yeah, he's not roided up. Um, and one one of my favorite things is he has a he has a very normal looking face, but it, it's a face that has a lot of character to it. I mean, you can definitely tell uh, when Piper's acting in the film. You can't quite, you know, compete with uh, Keith David. Who I think is a very good actor, very good character actor, mm-hmm. um, but and he he just does the right amount and he says his lines just right, and I wouldn't he's want a, anyone else to say it. He's a mulleted, flannel wearing man of the 1980s. It's absolutely a hard working dude, and in his own words, who plays by the rules and believes in America. That's right. That's right. And uh, so let's let's talk about John Carpenter's America then, because it's very early in the movie. We we have Piper, you know, walking onto the construction job site, finding work. But we also have scenes of him sitting in hobo camps and watching television from other people's win through other people's windows, and just sort of seeing these really superficial, uh, zany advertisements. Yeah, like, there's this great ad where it's this woman kind of going on and on about being a star or having her own shows and everyone loving her. It's meant to be silly and over the top uh, to, to lampoon that sort of uh, super superficial attitude. And, and this film was made right at the tail end of the Reagan administration. 
there's a lot of there's a lot of you can tell that Carpenter was not uh, Ronnie's biggest fan. No, he was not a fan of corporatism, uh, the greed, um, the yuppie culture that had emerged. And we're not trying to get very political ourselves no. on this film, but you can't talk about They Live without mentioning it. Not at all. It's, it, it is the core of the movie. Everything points toward this loathing of Reagan-era economics. It is the source of conflict, but it is, it is a movie I don't know it could have been made any other way than having it with an alien, a science fiction context. And Probably we should talk a little bit about the story before we really confuse the people who've so far ventured to listen on through our spoilery uh, uh, discussion of this movie. Sure. Um, the movie does begin with Roddy Piper on his way from Colorado. He goes to an employment agency. They don't seem to have any work for him. And uh, next thing you know, he shows up at a construction site. He's a hard-working dude, honest. And uh, he has to sleep outdoors. Uh, eventually, he befriends a, another construction worker played by Frank, uh, by Keith David, known as Frank. And I don't think they ever actually say uh, Roddy Piper's not a character. I don't think they say his name at all in the movie. He's mm. just listed as such in the credits. And I didn't even know he was named John Nada until I watched a behind-the-scenes little featurette. With uh, Roddy Piper speaking in the third person, uh, <laughs> Roddy Piper and uh, John in, in Nada. True, true wrestler fashion. There's the third person speaking. Yes, it's absolutely perfect. And uh, but back to the movie. While uh, John Nada befriends Keith David, he shows him this sort of like squatter village where other homeless people live and. Uh, eat and take care of each other and across the street there's this old looking uh, Pueblo Episcopalian church with a, with a blind priest that was on the street corner uh, preaching that the world was more than we were seeing like it was yeah it's not yeah it's not even like a religious uh, sort of rant <laughs> he's just railing raging against the uh, the man and uh, televisions start receiving hacked signals from a person claiming that the world is also uh, changed and we're not seeing the truth and we need to open our eyes to it. And... Yes. In, in true Morpheus from the Matrix fashion, the world is a lie and pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. And of course, unlike, uh, unlike Mr. Nada, most of, the other con most of the other people in the hobo camp, on the construction yards, respond to this with sort of a, ah, I'm sick of this guy, take it over, it's ruining my favorite shows. Like, they just want to stay asleep and keep watching uh, their favorite programs. Yeah, um, John Nada is the only character who seems to be remotely intrigued by this. And uh, then he notices, like, just sort of odd goings-on going on with, uh, with the church across the street. And uh, he finally takes a moment to spy on it. And lo and behold, he finds the, uh, the man he's seen on TV making the transmissions, arguing with other people from the camp. I mean, it's a nice bit of uh, convenience for the story. But the, this is a, this is a short movie, so they need to keep the pace going. It is a short film. It, it can't quite be like an epic, and it's a three million dollar film, which is absolute peanuts, e e even by 
yesterday's standards. I guess what in, what would it be in today's dollars? Oof, eighteen like uh, million. It yeah, it would it would still be a very it very much be an independent release by today's standards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and John Carpenter uh, was a guy who could transform the tiniest budget into something that looked really expensive. And the best example of that was probably Escape from New York, with just great uses of matte paintings and such, and miniatures. And again, that, that comes up here as well, uh, the use yes. of matte paintings and miniatures and studio sets. Yes. And uh, throughout this time, this is an action film, but throughout this time, there hasn't been any sort of action scene in the movie. This is very much a slow burn up until like when the major conflict erupts. It's a movie that takes its time for a, you know a low-budget action film, and for the best, really. For the best, yeah. Uh, too often these days, like a movie does, have to open up with spectacular sort of you know stunt sequence or whatever, and just to we get as an audience, up. we need we need an explosion right out of the gate. So I, I could imagine somebody who's not used to a movie with this kind of pacing. Not this, they live is not a slow-paced film at all. Not what I'm saying. It just takes a little while for get for it to get to get to the action, mm-hmm. um, but it, but it, but if you see like somebody who's used to your Michael Bay kind of movies, your modern superhero movies, he'd be maybe a little bored the first uh, first act of this movie. And well, it, it's to the, it's to the movie's benefit in that way because I mean Nada naturally uh, goes into this church finds a box of sunglasses, puts a pair on, and sees the world differently. Um, and black and white, for starters. Yes, th- this is after um, there's like this really odd raid with uh, these baseless sort of policemen. They have like these sort of fogged up visors covering their faces. Just completely wreck the squatter village, or the homeless camp. And uh, they beat up all sorts of people, arrest people. They they arrest the hobo, uh, the the preacher, and uh, Nada rescues like this youngish looking guy. Yeah, he he helps escort a boy through the window and like is like doing a dramatic alleyway escape through tenement buildings. Yes, uh, in very uh, John Carpenter fashion. It's uh, he stages everything in like uh, a John Sturgis sort of way. He made gr- John Sturgis, director of uh, Great Escape, for example, Magnificent Seven, Nice Days and Zebra. Um, great use of the you know widescreen two thirty five to one aspect ratio, and like his compositions and what's going on in the background and the foreground are really similar, and I think even on Twitter. John Carpenter said John Sturgis was his uh, was his god or something like that, which you can totally for, for see. Car- for Carpenter, it really comes down to a love of Sturgis and Howard Hawks, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13 is kind of a reworking of Rio Bravo. Hmm. You never quite had enough Hawksian females, so I guess, with, I guess maybe with uh, Halloween and... Uh, Adrian Barbeau and uh, Escape from New York. <laughs> but anyways, back to They Live. Yeah. Oh, uh, we, we do frequently take... Um, S- some deviations from... It's still about, you know, 
it's it's still about the film and the films of this director, so yeah. we're safe. We are fans, and we hope you are too. Uh, so then he does find the box of sunglasses, and he looks a little disappointed. It's like, that's what all this fuss was about? This is why they're raiding our camp? Yeah. And what happens after is just so one, such a wonderful uh, discovery for you as a viewer. And, and uh, what does happen? Well, he puts the. I mean, he's he's walking down the street, looking at billboards of you know exotic vacations and you know sexy bikini-clad women and magazine covers, and he puts on the glasses, and suddenly. These, these billboards of lush tropical getaways turn into things that say obey, uh, mate, and procreate, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, he looks at a wad of cash, and it says, this is your god, and it's in, like, these big, bold, black letters. It's really striking because it's minimalist, you know. Marry and breed. <laughs> yeah. It's very much these sort of subliminal commands from from some unseen enemy that just intends for us to be dull and live this sort of life of comfort and modernity. Yeah, it, it, it's one of the best scenes in the film. It, the way, the pacing of it, like he looks at the ground and just the ground is weird because when he looks through the sunglasses, everything's black and white. And then he starts to look at the signs. And then that's when he sees all these bizarre messages at least and uh this is when john carpenter first makes good use of uh matte paintings we were talking about all the buildings that he looks at with the billboards before and after our matte paintings yeah it, it, it blends in really well though and you wouldn't you wouldn't i would never have known had, com had a carpenter not said that on the commentary yeah matte paintings are unfortunately a lost art and it's all done in photoshop now and matte paintings are definitely something we'll be talking about more and more with the more old movies we review. Because, as you said, it truly is a lost art and an art that low-budget films use to beautiful effect. And these extremely skilled artists, uh, what do they do now? Um, I really don't know. Mm. When they've been uh, replaced by the expediency of uh, Photoshop. And, and CGI uh, wizards. CGI wizards, yes. As talented as they may be, or some of them. Not quite the same. No. Uh, so anyways, what Roddy Piper sees next, in addition to all the signs, ends up being a little stranger, and a little more horrifying. He... He puts on the glasses next uh, next to a man, a wealthy-looking man in a business suit, at the same newsstand he's at. And, of course, all the magazines have the same sort of cryptic, uh, consumerist messages written on them. Just one-word one, one word messages on white backgrounds. Uh, and he, takes, he, he looks and he sees the newsstand guy, who looks very normal, but also this man that looks like – this wealthy man in a suit that looks like a skeleton. He's – yeah, he's he's not quite like a skeleton, but he's a ghoul. Yeah. So sort of there's like strips of flesh. He's sort of strange like we can see that he's sort of strangely colored and has like weird fleshy dots on his face. Yeah, and he has like these giant eyes that you would normally see like in a skull sort of outlined. 
But, but that Rick that rictus grin of a skull, though. Yeah, they're they're not necessarily scary looking, and that wasn't Carpenter's intention, but they're very striking looking. And really, that's that's our Act One explosion. Yeah, that that's what sets in motion um, everything else that follows. It <laughs> like a not, good screenplay. It, <laughs> and it does not take long after that sequence for Piper to lose his shit. Nope. <laughs> like any normal person, it wouldn't take long for that to really freak you out. And uh, I think the next thing he does, he walks into a grocery store, and he. Uh, he notices a few of the patrons are of the same variety of ghoul. And and to further home those messages that are on the billboards, for example, we see we see uh, with Piper's glasses on, we see a very normal looking, probably up and coming businessman who looks like a human being talking to one of the ghouls about his desire to get a promotion and wondering how this ghoul got a promotion so quickly and what's your secret? How can I do this too? Little did he know. And the ghoul's just like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And, of course, that'll all be explained later in the film. Yeah. Um, and then comes some of the wonderfully ham-fisted delivery of Roddy Piper when he looks at uh, a sort of, like, elderly rich lady with, like, a fur coat buying her groceries. And she's also got a ghoul face now with these glasses on. And he, I mean, and he, and we get such wonderful lines like, lady, you, you look like you, you, you fell face first in the cheese dip in 1956. Uh, a line to this day, which I do not know what it means, like what the context of cheese dip in 56 would be. But yeah. I take these glasses I, off. She looks perfectly normal. You, you look all right. You, real fucking ugly. That's right. <laughs> and then that sets off the uh, ghoul, ghoul woman. She, she sort of looks at it, she gets her uh, she has like a Dick Tracy looking watch a, two, a two way wristwatch communicator yeah and uh, I've got she says I got one that can see the next thing Roddy Piper's looking around and then all the other ghoul people have their watches up just communicating mumbling. yeah it's really ominous and if the movie could ever be called scary that's probably one of the few scary things in the movie yeah. And so of course, I mean that sets off the chain of events. Piper Piper runs, he's on the street, and already he has decided it is time to do something about this. He needs no further convincing. Yeah, and uh, a pair of cops stop him in an alleyway. And uh just to not rock the boat at least to go, "Hey, uh let's not take this any further than we have to. Something can be done about this." Of course, Roddy takes this as an opportunity to show off his uh, clotheslining skills. Yes. One of the uh, one of the first clotheslines in a film, I believe. Yeah. Um, maybe, I think The Longest Yard might have come a little earlier than that, but generally speaking. Yeah, about 10 years-ish. Um, and Roddy uh, acquires a little a small arsenal. <laughs> and this... And destroys the ghoul cops. Oh, he just ruins them, yeah. But leaves the human cop, the one that he he sees is still human, he gives him the opportunity to put the gun down and just run away. Yeah, uh, John Carpenter said that scene was very important because he didn't want to make it seem Roddy Piper was now just an insane lunatic and he's going to kill everyone. 
Because he does go onto a, a rampage inside of a bank where he lets out one of the most famous lines in action movies from the 80s. Go ahead. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. A line that he improvised. Uh, he, uh, was told, he was told on the day of the shoot, just say anything, Roddy. What would you say if you were standing in the bank with a gun? <laughs> that was his decision. It, I like that it's this... It's this image of this blue-collar worker, literally blue-collar, with his guns, the sunglasses, and the American flag in the background. <laughs> Perfectly framed. Perfectly framed. Like we said, Mr. Carpenter does not care for subtlety. He but means we, but what we he means. We can see that Carpenter is a big fan of blue-collar America. Like, that is John Carpenter's America. Well, that that's uh, typically the hero of his films, uh... Jack Burton and Big Trum Little China's a truck driver, uh, the cops in Assault on Precinct 13. The heroes of the thing are just scientists. Yeah, they're, they're scientists, just... but they're like truck driver scientists. You know what right, I mean? Yeah. They're real like, scruffy. Oh, Kurt Russell's just their helicopter pilot. Yeah, he's just a helicopter pilot. The pay's good. I think it says something like that in the script. Yeah, I've these, read aren't, the these aren't the uh, these aren't the wealthy scientists. They're just the guys that are willing to live in the Arctic for a few months. Yeah, and those are the heroes for John Carpenter. Oh, yeah, or Laurie Strode in Halloween. She's your oh. typical middle-class teenager. Mm-hmm. Babysitter who, who needs to earn some extra cash. Yeah, just happens to be a maniac on the loose. Um, and he, as you said, he goes on a rampage with a shotgun in this bank, but he only strikes the ghouls. Who are working as tellers and as customers. Yes, how does that work? Uh, <laughs> I guess the ghouls walk up to the ghouls and they... I, I don't know. They get ghoul cash, ghoul they bucks. Ghoul, ghoul, ghoul bucks, yeah. Um, but we, as the viewers, we still don't really understand. We don't have all the pieces together. Like, who are these ghouls and how, what's going on with these sunglasses, you know? Or is Roddy Piper just crazy? Like, he, he doesn't really care. He just knows it's wrong. He knows it's wrong. They shouldn't be there. <laughs> and he's got to stop it. That's right. Um, so, yeah, so he follows that up by uh, having sufficiently blown away all of the aliens in the bank, running out into the alleyway and being spot, spied by a, a sphere, a, a pod that is just sort of observing him from afar. <laughs> So yeah, we well, already know this This extends farther than just people and ghoul makeup. Yeah, he says something like, Mama don't like tattletales. <laughs> and also, and blasts that thing, too. It's oh, yeah, it, the, the hovering camera. Uh, unfortunately, those aren't utilized too much in the movie. I, for, uh, once again, budget uh, constrictions. Constraints. Yeah. Um, and floating, floating metal, floating silver spears, uh, popular around this time, uh, also appearing in the Phantasm movies. Oh yes, the balls of death. <laughs> hey, what are, are they just called? The death balls in Phantasm. I believe so. Yes. I don't even know if they ever had names. They were just brain sucking pinballs. And I thought that that's so that's so cool. But that's 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 a that's a story for another day. <laughs> another day. Uh, <laughs> when when we talk about nothing but horror movies. That have action motifs. That's right. Of course. Um, and so then we, uh, I think, 
I think the very next cut might be like a, a shot of uh, uh, what Meg Foster's uh, rear end in like a skirt. She's walking to her car. She looks about middle class. Maybe maybe upper middle. Maybe upper middle, yeah. And uh, you know, it's a pretty lady. And uh, Roddy Piper sticks her up because now he knows that everyone in the city's after him. But through his glasses, he can see she's not one of them. Oh, yeah. And uh, he has her uh, drive him to her place. In the Hollywood Hills. Like, it's a very nice sort of... Yeah, or somewhere in the valley. I guess this is before L.A. traffic was as horrible as it is now. I don't know. Definitely a very nice place overlooking a cliff, though. Because I don't think you can get from downtown L.A. to the valley and the uh, two minutes it takes in the movie. Trust me, I've tried. Um, <laughs> so he he has decided briefly to trust this woman with her, with her eyes that are way too green. <laughs> yes. I, I think that was one of the reasons Carpenter cast her. Like, her eyes are just really striking. She's a striking woman. They're very otherworldly. Yes. Uh, Piper, I think Piper called said that working with her was like staring into a sea of green. I believe it. Yeah. And uh, I think Piper does try in his lumberjack way to explain to her what's going on, and it doesn't make much sense. Well, because he's he's already pointed a gun to her and carjacked her, so no matter what he says, she's not liable to listen when he goes onto this insane rant about about magic sunglasses that make the world look like a much more frightening place. Yeah. I'm always surprised. I always wish he'd say something like NWO, new, new world order. <laughs> Just so that it could tie into future wrestling events. Absolutely. <laughs> if only, <laughs> but, uh, Meg Foster doesn't buy his bullshit at all. She whacks him in the back of the head when he lets his guard down with a, a champagne bottle. And I don't know. According- I think this is one of the few stunts in the movie Roddy Piper doesn't do. Someone just tumbles out of the window. Looks like now a... Piper Piper did take the hit on the head with the bottle though, and he said it didn't break the first time. It just hit him with a thud. <laughs> the second time it broke. Yeah, and uh, I think the only stunt in the movie he didn't do was actually falling through the window. Stunt of his own, that is. It, and it looked like a painful fall. It did not. <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, kudos to whoever did that. Uh, whether it was the stunt coordinator uh, or not, I don't know. Very nicely done stunt. And uh, I think it, the movie kind of cuts to the next day, and <laughs> Roddy Piper runs into his friend uh, Frank again. <laughs> Keith David. And by this time, he's been all over the news. for, <laughs> And one of my favorite lines in the movie is said right here, and... Uh, Keith David goes, how many people did you kill? And then Roddy Aver goes, they weren't people. <laughs> it just makes him sound like a complete psychopath to uh, Keith David like it would to anybody else. And that's like this great expression he gives Roddy Piper. And it's just beautiful. But of course, of course, David is still <laughs> being kind because he has got he has gotten Piper a wad of bills. Yes. And. and- yeah, during this time they're inside it. They're uh, they're in like this alley, any number of scuzzy alleys in downtown LA. And this leads to one of the great scenes of the film. 
probably I mean I action wise the best. Oh, easily, easily. Um, one of the best, and possibly the best in the movie. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite non kung fu fight scenes ever in a film. Uh, but what leads on to this fight, it's like five and a half minutes long, is Roddy Piper has to convince Keith David to put on the same sunglasses. Because he knows, he's seen Keith David, Keith David is normal too, and he likes this guy. Yeah. Uh, he he trusts him. This is another blue-collar man like himself who possibly has the strength, if he could get a buddy, to challenge these ghouls. Yeah, he, he needs an accomplice. He's got to have someone else in a, a resistance. And of course, it all starts with, put on these glasses. Put, put on, on the glasses! And Keith David is having none of it. He is not buying into this crazy bullshit from this crazy guy who just murdered a bunch of people the day before. He's already shown him enough kindness by meeting him in this way to give him the wages he did not pick up from his construction work previously. He doesn't want this guy to be involved in his life anymore. Just stay away from me and my family. Yeah, these guys are still buddies. And uh, it just starts with, like I think, a single punch to the face to a Roddy Piper. And then it's an, it's like, then he gives him a punch in return, and then we just have an all-out slugfest that just goes on and on and on. And uh, John Carpenter said he wanted to do a fight scene in the vein of the John Wayne movie, uh, The Quiet Man, which is another fight that went on and on. It was between two friends. They just keep hitting each other. And that's that's the big insistence in the commentaries too. They just they keep reinforcing these two guys still kind of like each other. Like that's they don't want to kill some, each other, but they want to beat the shit out of each other all the same. They like it's, knock some sense into each other. Yeah, this is probably the most realistic fight in a movie. I mean, other they, we get some we get some back suplexes and some gut wrench suplexes thrown in, but this is this is mainly balls to the wall uh, street punch, fight. Punch, yeah, yep. street fight. Uh, uh, grabbing improvised weapons like a two by four and swinging that dangerously at somebody. Uh, repeated nut shots. Yeah, uh, the, the everyone involved with the scene really knocked it out of the park. Carpenter's direction, uh, Jeffy Mata's stunt coordination, uh, Roddy Piper and Keith David's just chemistry with each other, and. The fact that they didn't hold their punches back unless they were punching each other in the face. Like, they were really slugging each other in the body. I think Roddy Piper told Keith David, anything, you know, kind of below the neck is fine by me. Yeah, he he even told uh, Keith David to stop working so light with him because whenever they'd hit the ground, he said Keith David would always be very safe with Piper and catch him before he hit the ground hard enough. And so Piper started demanding, "No, just hit me as hard as you can and drop me," you know, so he could use his full wrestling training. He he's learned to take bumps. This is his career. Yeah. He knows how to fall convincingly and fall in a way that will reduce the damage as much as possible. It, he uh, Keith David even impressed uh, Roddy Piper. With his dedication and his uh, physicality, like he just brought it. When, if uh, Carpenter's to be believed too, they trained this. They they rehearsed this scene in Carpenter's backyard for a month. Yeah, and and it shows. Um, and one of my favorite aspects among many in the fight is that they get more and more tired as it goes on. Like if you've ever been in any kind of real fight or if you've sparred with anyone, 
you just you know that the fighting or wrestling is just one of the most exhausting activities you can uh, you can do. You're gonna get blown out quickly. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're not training for it. I mean, these are guys that are probably in pretty good shape because they work construction. But, they but they're still been... not guys who fight all the time. No, they haven't been doing Rocky training all day up in the uh, Russian mountains. <laughs> and also, I, I love the I love the sheer amount of cheap shots. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one part. Uh... <laughs> Keith David takes the sunglasses and acts like he's going to step on them to smash them. And Roddy Piper goes, no! And while he has his guard, he has his head down, Keith David takes the opportunity to just knee him right in the face. There's also a lot of, uh, there's also bits with, you know, one extending the hand to the other to help him up and just knocking him back down <laughs> to the ground. And Roddy Piper tries to go for a, a nut shot. <laughs> Keith David goes, dirty motherfucker. <laughs> One of my favorite bits in this too is when is the scene where the two by four is swung and it hits a nearby car and smashes the mirror and both and both both David and Piper turn to each other and it's such a genuine look of like holy shit you could have just leveled me with that <laughs> and then uh, Roddy Piper goes oh man I'm sorry was was that supposed to be Keith David's car I, I just couldn't tell because I didn't think he had a car yeah he walked he walked off he walked. In from the other side of the scene, so uh, it doesn't seem to be. I, I just uh, figure he'd apologize because, like, uh, that could have killed him. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I'm sorry. And then Keith David immediately picks up a bottle, tries to break it to get it all jagged, and then it just breaks in his hand, and he just just fuck it and throws it down. <laughs> and Roddy Piper just can't help but laugh. It's it's pretty funny. It's like. Well, your friend is trying to hurt you, and he's so pissed off. You know, you probably start laughing too. Yeah, it's 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 very brutal, but it's kept so light. It, it, it's lighthearted, and, and it's it's just got so much energy. And uh, <laughs> I think eventually they just, they just keep hitting each other like a pair of rock'em sock'em robots, and just grunting. Put on the glasses. Piper delivers a big gut wrench suplex, and then they're both just exhausted heaps on the street. Oh yeah, and then uh, I think that that's not before Keith David takes the sunglasses and tosses them on Roddy Piper while he's down for a moment. and goes, "Fuck you!" <laughs> he's just ready to go home. And then Roddy just bum rushes him right into the wall <laughs> before he before he finally forces the glasses onto his face and just yells, "Look!" And drags drags his like exhausted body onto the streets just to see these people. Yeah, and as he looks, he sees the two aliens, and they're uh, they have their little watch communicators up, kind of mumbling off out of our uh, hearing range. Fortunately, P Piper has dumpster dived to find another pair of glasses for Keith David. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. When he when he went back into an alleyway. He went to go find the box of glasses he originally hidden, and kind of goes this little amusing scene where he has to find them in a in a garbage uh, truck. But uh, my favorite, one of my favorite things about that long fight scene is that they cut, and normally when you cut in an action movie, whatever damage has been done previously is sort of absolved. It's wiped away. They're back to a clean slate. Not here. We just see these two really broken, exhausted men. Barely, barely dragging themselves through the streets. Yeah, 
And they both had long days of work, and Roddy Piper's had no sleep. They're just two tired dudes. They're still kind of swollen in the face from all the punches they've taken. Yeah, they they decided to just shack up in like a tiny room, this sort of a part, uh, motel or something in the city. <laughs> and they just take off their glasses and you, their faces are just look like hamburger. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I think they, they cut to like the next day and their faces are mostly healed. Yeah. I guess that was just budget limitations too. It, it still, it's still a nice touch for the scene that we got it in. That's such a rare thing. It, it is a rare thing. Um, I can only think of a few other movies where the hero will be beaten up for the you know good duration of the rest of the film. Maybe like Eastern Promises, the classic bathhouse fight scene with uh, Viggo Mortensen. He, he's pretty mangled in that fight himself, and he stumbles around and is bruised for the rest of the movie there. But, but it is really nice. And a great way to show us that our heroes aren't invincible. No, no, no. They're they're not the Terminator. Uh, and for and finally, Piper has a friend. Finally, yeah. He has someone else that's seeing this the way he is, which yeah. not too long after discovers a whole crew of people that see the world yeah, this way. Some of them were uh, the people in the the hobo camp and in the church, and then they they go over to a meeting. At some location where they have just a sort of like a little pile of like guns and grenades. And these are revolutionaries who who know what the ghouls are up to, who know about this sort of consumerist world they've they've used to make to make people their lazy, obedient slaves. Yeah, do all the labor. Uh, the and have the, have the ghouls have yeah. the ghouls and their subordinates accumulate all the wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say this movie is not pro-communist. It's just anti-ghoul. And anti-rich. <laughs> anti-rich. At, at, rich at the expense of the working man. That's right. So it, it's not against so, people who... Slightly communist. Slightly communist, yeah. Um, but I think at this moment they do run into... Uh, Holly, Meg Foster's character, she just happens to be at the same meeting. For whatever reason, she is now buying what Nada is selling. Yeah. And before you know it, uh, oh wait, uh, Roddy Piper and Keith David ditch the sunglasses and then they're outfitted with uh, contact lenses. Because because the the ghouls are now looking for sunglasses. The yeah. contact lenses are less conspicuous and you can see in color. That's true. Um, it's too bad, though, uh, they couldn't keep, like, the Bret Hart sunglasses. That would have been <laughs> that nice. That would have been nice. I, I kind of miss the sunglasses. And, of course, it, it, it does not take long at all. I mean, we get a little bit of exposition about the, about the aims of these creatures to keep us asleep and to, to use us for, to, to create wealth for themselves. And they have to hide because they're weak. Um, yeah, um... The the title of the movie "They Live" is it's a it's displayed as a piece of graffiti. I think in the opening credits and in a scene where Roddy Piper sees it, it says "They live, we sleep," and that is the theme of the movie, right there. Kind of like uh, Apocalypse Now. I think that was graffiti too in that movie. Hmm. And so, and of course, this 
it does not take long for this place to get raided too. More uh, uh, misted, visored uh, police officers just wreck the joint and shoot everybody up. In, in one of the commentaries, uh, Carpenter pats himself on the back for doing a Rodney King-style police brutality beating in a scene before that incident happened. Oh, yeah. Was that with the... Uh, the first raid. The first raid with the preacher, the black preacher. Who's beaten to a pulp by the cops. Even though, he's, even though he's not a, he's not, he's blind and not a threat. And he's armed only with a cane. So there's 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 a lot of anti-authority messages here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, it's we almost immediately after that, David and Piper jump into a hole, and they are in the underground <laughs> tunnel layer of these creatures. Yeah, that, there's a pretty nice, but nothing like really spectacular uh, shootout through an alleyway. Um, you even see. Uh, Sort of uh, our Genghis Khan stuntman, Al Leong, pop out for like two seconds. Um, and if you know him, you'd know him if you see him. He's in Die Hard, Lethal Weapon. He usually gets killed. Uh, Genghis Khan and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yeah, uh, he's one of the low-pan henchmen in Big Trouble in Little China. I'm pretty sure Brandon Lee killed him in Rapid Fire. You'd know him if you see him. Uh, great character actor stuntman. He's been around forever. Um, but they do jump into a hole once they get cornered in the alleyway by the uh, ghoul cops. And it looks kind of difficult for them to jump because these are two rather large guys jumping into a small <laughs> hole. So I'm yeah. sure that wasn't, that wasn't the easiest day on set, probably. Yeah, I, I, the, uh, the hole is a portal opened up by the watches. I think that they've, I think they stole off one of the uh, ghouls. I think they received it from uh, another revolutionary at the, uh, the meeting right before the raid. So now our two heroes jump through the hole, and they find themselves in this sort of barren, long, like, subway-looking tunnel. Full of rent-a-cop-looking security guards. Yeah. And then they run into this guy who's human, played by George Buck Flower, a mainstay in John Carpenter and just 80 movies, 80s movies in general, typically as a homeless guy. He actually appears earlier in the film in the homeless camp as one of the one of the hobos watching TV. Um, and if you look at his IMDb page, he's frequently listed as drunk guy, old guy, bearded homeless guy, uh, so on and so forth. A vast career of homelessness. Yeah, but but Carpenter has him play uh, uh, one of these wealthy like human people who've been bought off by the ghouls. Because our tunnel system leads to this really fancy gala where ghoul and and wealthy ghoul and wealthy human mingle and talk about all their accomplishments. Yeah. Although one of my favorite bits here is that they, they, they go into this gala and they're surrounded by people in tuxedos. And we have Keith David in a t-shirt and Nada in his flannel. And they're both kind of they're, – they're trying to blend in and they're hiding their guns behind their backs. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little silly. Well, I think I think uh, uh, George Flower goes like, "Oh, you boys didn't have time to change. That's okay." Yeah, <laughs> I He's guess he didn't. Excited. He didn't get the memo about the revolutionaries. You could see, I guess. If if you found this tunnel, you're supposed to be here. 
I guess he was. He would have been looking for the sunglasses. I don't think he knew about the lens, contact lenses just about yet. Yeah. But here, here we learn that the uh, within this complex, that the wealthy human beings have sold out their entire race in order to have more wealth because because these aliens promote themselves through all ki- all industry and they also promote any any human being that is willing to sell out the rest of the race. Yeah, um, and then uh, Carpenter, in his in his own way, I, introduces a, another important theme: is that um, is comfort freedom, because you know you sell yourself out to the to the ghouls, but does that make you free? It makes you comfortable, it makes you wealthy. But and is even that if you, freedom, and even if you're not one of the wealthy, you're still someone who is fetishizing these commercial objects these these Vanity, magazines these yeah. billboards you you need these material goods to feel like you're you're alive but really in in carpenter's view you're sleeping yeah you're stuck in fantasy la la land um and then uh i think uh buck flowers says something like there are no more bad guys no more countries that's right why don't you be on a winning team and then he wants to show he kind of wants to show them how the bread is made. He decides to take them up a floor up and they are in the TV studio, which happens to be the beacon for where the I think the transmission for the alien frequencies broadcast and where the, the ghouls teleport themselves in from whatever other planet to ours. And then they kind of show that for just a split second. It's not that important and I'm kind of glad that the movie just glances over that. That's what you need to see. Aliens get here somehow. Let's move on with the story. And this is the thing that disguises them. Yeah. Just this random uh, signal. And, of course, Roddy Piper goes, Hey, can we get in that room? (laughs) And they just sort of start blasting all of the ghouls they see before uh, George Flower uses his watch to safely teleport himself. But conveniently, who should work at this TV studio but the green-eyed woman herself, Meg Foster? Green-eyed lady herself, yeah. Uh, I think the whole time Roddy Piper's like, where's Holly? Holly, whatever. I can't remember her last name. It's kind of asking people around. Uh, my favorite is like the pregnant woman with the big uh, coffee container. <laughs> it's like that caffeine's good for the baby. Just a minor observation. <laughs> uh, and, that, and, that, well, that, and that might be another little satirical note intended to be seen. Yeah, and then Roddy and uh, Keith David have like M16s and they're just politely asking everyone, where is the TV studio? Where is Holly? <laughs> That's right. They're going to they're gonna find their way to this signal and they're, they're going to break it. And in uh, like a run and gun, shoot em up. They, uh, Keith and Roddy just sort of run around and blast all the uh, the ghoul commandos who are armed with uh, I, I want to say like the Ghostbusters like PK meters yeah they're some sort of fancy alien tech <laughs> but it is definitely the same prop from uh, Ghostbusters that <laughs> Egon uses um, for all you 80s movie fans out there I guess everyone loves Ghostbusters, so... Everybody. You, you'll know it when you see it. Yeah. Um, but the action is not there for aesthetics. It's just there. They're just on their way just to mow down the bad guys. 
It is a mean of it. It is a means of advancing the plot, whatever whatever's left of it. It's just... simple, but it's exciting. Yes. Um. But this time, you really are attached to Roddy Piper and Keith David's cause. Let's, let's mow down these bad guys here. We're we're ready to see that now that we know that there's a clear enemy, that there's a clear obstacle, there's a clear goal. Get to this receiver. We're ready to see this revolution really take take its uh, footing. Yes, Canadian Roddy Piper wants to see the American dream live on. Because he's hardworking and he believes in America. He plays by the rules. That's right. Now, now we're not mocking Roddy Piper necessarily, but these are the things uh, he says. Lord knows I love the man. Love him too. I love this movie. <laughs> um, but during all this running and gunning, uh, I want to say there's an act of betrayal once they find Holly. She takes a very small feminine gun and just off camera blows out uh, Keith David's brains and then Roddy Piper gets finally gets to the roof of the TV station and finds the satellite dish that broadcasts the uh, disguising signal I want to call it now Piper knows here as well as we do he is not going to make this out of this alive now by this time the place is surrounded with ghoul commandos and helicopters and then and Holly is still menacing him she is, but for whatever reason, she's kind of hot for the hunky construction worker, if you want to say that. And she's like, come with me, instead of shooting him. You can be part of this. You can be part of this. Everything you want can be yours, something like that. And then he, I think he just blows her away, and then he blows up the, uh, or he shoots out the, the, the satellite dish finally. One final act of defiance. Yeah, before he himself gets mowed down. And then it's this great little montage of... We see everyone start to wake up. And then people freaking out when they see, like, their ghoul friends. And then the TV broadcaster's a ghoul. And he has, like, a big sign that behind him that just says, Obey. A, polit a politician on television. Uh, earlier in the film... Piper notices that, but yeah, I mean, we have we have a man in a bar who's watching TV, and the whole bar yeah. turns around and sees that he's a ghoul. Or a woman is uh, a woman is having sex with her boyfriend. Yeah, that's looks the final a, uh, lowbrow gag of the movie. Looks looks at a breath mint commercial, sees that one of the actresses on TV is a ghoul, and kind of weirded out by it because she's having sex. And then she turns and looks at her boyfriend, and he's a ghoul too. Like, what's, what's wrong, baby? Bit? And then it just I'll... cuts to black. My favorite bit in that, though, is that there there is a clear-cut uh, display of contempt from Carpenter to Siskel and Ebert. Oh yeah, uh, they they they're play they're there are ghouls that are blatantly dressed and wearing like Siskel and Ebert wigs, and they're talking about you know the the violence and low class, <laughs> low brow tastes of these George Romero's and John Carpenters, and they do call out John Carpenter. Are just I just can't stand them. It's terrible. It, there's no these morality. Are just, these are they're dragging down America, something like that. They're dragging he, down society. He has to flip his middle finger at these men who've probably given a lot of his movies bad reviews over the years. Uh, Ebert really liked uh, Halloween. He gave that movie a really positive review, but he hated the thing. He called it a barf bag or something like that. Which. Well, that that's a movie that was definitely underappreciated in its own time. Yeah, when you're 
sci-fi horror movie and you open up around the same time as E.T., things aren't going to look as bright. Yeah. Although it is the classic we all know and love to, to this day. Um, That's right. So, uh, They Live. This is a movie, unlike last week's, I'm definitely going to recommend that this is a movie that if you don't already own, you need to own. Um, Absolutely. Doesn't matter. I don't care what format. If you need to get it on Betamax, you know, if that's the only Laserdisc, if that's all you've got, just find a way to get this movie. But I recommend the Shout Factory uh, Blu-ray copy. It's really amazing. Uh, there's a there's a nice white sticker on the cover that says "Buy" in the style of the <laughs> subliminal messages in the film. It's got this really insane, busy artwork that, if you haven't seen the movie and you look at the artwork, maybe a little disappointing because it's got like. Uh, our two heroes with guns blazing, and hordes of, of ghouls behind them. Although, if you are a connoisseur of packaging, there is a reversible cover that is the classic cover. Ah, good to know. I, I, I don't have the Shout Factory yet. I have the old Bare Bones DVD from 10 years ago. That's good um, to know. So, do, how, do you, how, how far do you recommend this one, Bert? Uh, I think this is an absolute must-buy... Um, it's not like a movie that's about being spectacular. It's a really well-told nightmare story within a sci-fi action context. Um, and I think everyone needs to watch this movie. It's a classic. It's a cult classic. It's got great lines. It has one of the best fight scenes of the 80s. One, one of the best fight scenes ever, probably. At least as far as uh, non-martial arts brawls go. And for that brawl, I'd, I'd like to sing the praises real quick of stunt coordinator Jeff Imada, uh, who has had a very long career, maybe not the most distinguished one, but he's he's consistently worked for almost 30 years and is still making movies now. Uh, most notably, uh, he was the stunt coordinator here. He was the stunt coordinator on uh, Brandon Lee's The Crow, the stunt coordinator on Born Supremacy, Born Ultimatum. Uh, Fight Club, which, you know, has more of that brawling style. Mm -hmm. Or even uh, even the recent Twilight movies, if you're a fan of those. Hey, guys gotta eat. <laughs> guys gotta eat, man. Um, I, I, I have to um, talk about how my first experience watching this film, because it was so memorable to this day. I was a kid. I don't know, I was about 11 or so, and it was like a boring Saturday afternoon. And they said it was like, happy birthday to Roddy Piper. I think this is when he was doing WCW by this time. And they said, yeah, coming up next, they live. I said, they live, what the heck is that? I guess I'll watch it, I got nothing else to do. And this movie starts, and I'm just kind of feeling its vibe. I have no idea what this movie's about. And then once he puts the glasses on, and sees all these crazy signs, and then he's looking at the ghouls. It's my mind was just completely blown, and I just had to see every single sort of harebrained encounter after that. Um, and it was just such a fun and memorable viewing experience for the first time. And very few movies I've seen, even ones that I love, had that kind of impact. So I, I could there's like other a small handful of movies that I really just loved the first time viewing, especially. And you know, contrary to listening to this this spoiler filled podcast, yeah, the really the best way to see this movie is to come into it blind and probably 
at about the age you saw it at, or you know that I saw it at even. Yeah. Uh, before you're, you're before you start thinking a lot of these big political ideas or having thoughts about what well, consumerist items and things like that mean in our lives. This movie didn't brainwash me or anything, but it it got some certain ideas into my head yeah. about uh, modern life, things I, n- I never thought about. Absolutely. I'm no kind of activist or anything this day, but it had it got me thinking. And that's sure. one of the best things a movie or any piece of artwork can do. Especially an action movie, because that's not really an expected that's thing. That's so rare. Um, you know, I, I had a similar experience the first time I saw The Matrix. I didn't know that was about uh, machines having people inside of little pods, and that was a fake construct universe we were looking at. Or that people shooting slow-mo bullets at each other would be quoting the philosophy of Rene Descartes. So I... I've also tried to figure out, and I'm really having a hard time with it, but I I haven't been able to figure out a modern wrestler that could headline a remake of They Live. And let's be realistic, there's probably going to be a remake of They Live. Uh, I think recently in a Q&A, like last year, Roddy Piper said a, a remake has been thought out. And sadly, for for all of his commentary on not liking... Uh, lazy, wealthy people. Uh, John Carpenter very candidly said in an interview once that his favorite job in the world was reading the trade papers, finding out someone was remaking one of his movies, extending his right hand, and watching money fall into it. <laughs> uh, let's let's kind of go through what's been remade. Halloween, The Fall. Halloween 2. Halloween 2. Uh, the thing got the, a, the thing. thing got a prequel that was essentially the same movie. Um... What else has been remade? I mean, he's done remakes himself. The Thing, his best, probably his best movie, and one of his worst movies, uh, Village of the Damned. That was a remake. Um, so it's no surprise. Oh, yeah, Assault on Precinct 13. That was remade uh, a few years ago. Forgettably. Forgettably. Very forgettably. Um, so don't be shocked if there's a They Live with uh, I don't know, Ryan Gosling a few years from now, or Colin Farrell, probably Colin Farrell. Thomas Jane, or if WWE Films wants to make it, they'll probably put CM Punk in there just because he's a he's he's the modern smug uh, heel that they let do a lot of talking in the Piper fashion. He'd probably he'll probably play like a guy that's like an auto detailer or works in a car shop to explain all his tattoos. Yeah, but re- uh, but as far as wrestlers go, I can't think of really one who would. Bill, uh, Roddy Piper's shoes. It's it's a tough sell. Um, he is he's, like we said, he's just so perfect for this role. And he's he's sort of a carryover from a kind of vintage era. Like he, there there's so much focus now in regards to mainstream wrestlers to have these really jacked appearances and be taller than six foot four and like. It, so we're not gonna see. A, a sort of rough guy, rough everyman like Roddy Piper again, maybe, or anytime soon in mainstream wrestling. Or in film, really. I mean... Uh, uh, we had this discussion with The the, the Last Stand. Uh, who are the up-and-coming action stars? If there are, they're, they're really, like, kind of pretty boys. Yeah, it it's just... 
the thing about Piper that works so beautifully is, like we said, he he is this rugged guy that I can buy as being a construction worker that stumbles into this. Yeah, just this badass regular dude who's just fed up. He's uh, all he's all gumption and he's all heart. But you know, if the remake is inevitable, inevitably, I'll see it, or I won't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't but, know but, either. For the purpose of this podcast, though, I probably will see it just so that we can have a chance to revisit it. And yeah, um, I'm always, I'm frequently looking for excuses to talk about They Live. Uh, so anytime someone wants to talk about this movie with me, I'm up for it. Or just John Carpenter in general. I I also want to point out just before we go uh, that you know, in spite of what we said about not trying to be activists. A lot of the messages in They Live are still resi- re- uh, relevant and resonant in the political and socioeconomic climate we're in now. And I, and I know that Shout Factory believes this because they timed the release of the Blu-ray to be on the night of the election in 2012. It came oh, out November really? 6, 2012. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah if, if you're a fan of looking at uh, differing viewpoints, this is the action movie outlet for you. Very much so. So I am uh, Casey Mitchum. This is Burton Cody. Uh, we're with the Bullet Time Action Podcast, bringing you week in, week out, the finest in action movie uh, worship, I guess, if you want to say that. <laughs> I do. All right. Good night, everybody.